Hello, how are you doing? I'm Craig Parkinson. You are listening to the Two Shot Podcast. Sit yourself down, pop the kettle on. We're going to have a nice old chat. Who's it with this week? I'm going to tell you right now. How the devil are you? No, really mean it. How are you? Is everything okay? Are you keeping safe? Um, it seems to me that London is quite the the hotbed, hotbed, hotspot at the moment. You know what I mean? Um, cases are on the rise. So if you're there, keep safe. If you're planning on going to the theatre, I know a lot of theatres are postponing shows, cancelling shows. Friend of mine... Um, it's in a very small theatre production, um, slap bang in the middle of Covent Garden. They've had to, uh, hit the, uh, hit the pause button for a bit. So I don't know how long that is going to be. She was just in previews and, um, they've had to, uh, they've had to pull it for a bit. So, uh, sending lots of love to everybody out there who's had to close the doors for a while. Hopefully it won't be too long till you can welcome back audiences in, uh, in the safest way possible, I suppose. Like it's like somebody on social media was asking the other day about if we're going to do some live podcast recordings next year. Obviously, we would love to. It's always so nice. Every single live show that we've done over the last few years, whether they've been um, at a festival or part of a podcast festival, or just you know popping up in a theatre, they've been great, and it's so lovely seeing all your faces. Um, so when we can do it, uh, in the safest way possible, that's what we'll be doing. We'll do that. That'd be nice, wouldn't it? Maybe we'll do, mate, you know what the dream would be? Here's what I'd really like. Okay. What I'd really like is to do, um, two guests in one night. That'd be quite nice, wouldn't it? Hmm. Yeah. Let's see. Shall we? Let's see. Let's, um, let's Let's not, I mean, I say get Christmas out of the way. I don't want to get Christmas out of the way. I want Christmas to be a really lovely time where we can all be with our loved ones um, and our families. You know what I mean? Sean um, Evans, he was nice, wasn't he, last week? That was a lovely surprise, wasn't it? He's great. And the response uh, the response was amazing. You seem to really, really get on board with Sean, as you should, as an absolute gentleman. Um, and then, as I said last week, I was really thrilled that he made the time because he doesn't tend to do printed interviews. He certainly doesn't do podcasts. So, um, yeah, I was absolutely made up. Speaking of somebody that doesn't do a lot of interviews and certainly hasn't done a podcast as far as I know is the brilliant Uan Rian. I've probably got that wrong. Sorry, Uan. Um, you're going to know him from the groundbreaking Channel 4 show created by Howard Overman called Misfits. If you haven't seen that, that is probably on the All 4 now, or it's on Netflix. Speaking of groundbreaking shows, he was in Game of Thrones. Um, He's got a new film. He's got a lovely Christmas film out. Maybe we need some lovely Christmas films. I think we do. I've started watching Christmas films, and this is on my list. It's called A Christmas Number 1. It's on Sky and Now TV. Um, with uh, 
Yuan combining two things that he loves, which we talk about at great length, which is acting and music. Um, also, I watched a really good film at the weekend too, while we're all talking about celebrating Christmas films. Um, let's have a think. It's called An 8-Bit Christmas. It's really good and it's funny and the kids aren't annoying. They're great. Um, if you want animation for the youngers, I heartily recommend Klaus, which is on Netflix. I saw that a couple of years ago and it's joyous. It's really, really lovely. Um, yeah. Okay. Well, I will stop wanging on and we can get down to what you're all here for, which is the Two Shot Podcast with the brilliant Uan Rian. And, uh, and we're online and we're sorted. But because I'm dead professional, I'm going to do an intro. Are you ready? Yeah, okay. You just, have, you just, hang, just shh, because people, it's supposed to be a surprise about who you are. So just calm. Okay. Right, okay. Right, okay. Ready. Now, this year on the Two Shot podcast, I have spoke to the great and the good of Welsh creative. So it seems fitting to close down the year with my favourite Welshman. And I'm always so paranoid when I say this, Mr. Iwan Rian. Have I got that right? I've got... <laughs> Pretty good. Iwan, the Iwan was great. The Rayon. <laughs> Rayon. 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 Rayon, yeah. Okay, we'll, we'll edit yeah. that out. It's fine. Um, Iwan, how are you, my friend? I'm very good, thank you. Yeah, very good. Yes, I'm in my mum's house, my mum and dad's house in can, Cardiff. Can we just talk about how Christmassy <laughs> your mum and dad. I mean, that is that is so beautiful. Um, for, for people that can't see, and they can't because it's a podcast, they just listen to it, there are very small elves and Santas behind yeah. you, just yeah. dangling Lots their, of Santas. Their lovely legs yeah. off the hearth of the fire. Yeah, it's... It's kind of, um, it, the whole house is like this. <laughs> <laughs> it's beautiful. Yeah, you've got to make an effort, Christmas, don't you? I mean, look, after the last 18 months we've had, I think everybody's pulling out all the stops, aren't they? I know I am. Yeah, you might as well. You might as well. Just, you know, hopefully. Well, well, well don't say that because you're going, well, might as well, just in case the world ends. Yeah, well, yeah, just in case we get another shock announcement from someone who lives in central london well yeah and thank god you're (laughs) in beautiful cardiff where i spent quite a bit of time this year oh yeah i saw you were were doing doctor who i was on another little thing i love cardiff i love its vibe and it's very friendly have i got that right or am i just seeing it as a sort of holiday maker no i think it, it does have a friendliness yeah i think the Welsh people are pretty friendly in general, I think. They're quite, you know, positive people. Well, certainly the ones that I've had on the podcast there have been nothing but glorious. Yeah. I'm glad you like Cardiff. It's nice to be back here. I haven't really been back much, but yeah, it's nice. So where have you been this year? Now you're back in uh, the bosom of Cardiff. (laughs) Well, I've been... I started the year off in Munich filming the magic flute, the Mozart thing. But I was in London, I mean, I'm living in London, but um, yeah, and then, and then I was, I filmed a bit of that in Tenerife as well, 
And then we filmed the Christmas number one in um, in London, which is quite a, a nice rarity to get to just actually go home to your own bed of an evening. Which is very rare that things are, are shot in London anymore. You're always just... I know, yeah. You know, off and everywhere around. It was great. It was really nice. I was just like, every night just getting back and being in my place, you know, it was so nice. Oh, getting in, um, your, getting yeah. in your own bed is... Yeah, it's, it's massive. It's, it's quite massive. a joy. Yeah. Especially when yeah. you're out on the road all the time because you constantly, you have that sort of, I mean, we're constant travellers anyway, but you have that traveller lifestyle and you go, all right, okay, well. And sorry, yeah. this this sounds like I'm moaning. I'm not. I'm just saying. <laughs> I know, it's, 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 it's so it's, difficult. <laughs> no, but it, I'm not saying that, but it's that sort of nomadic lifestyle that we've been mm. so used to for so long. Um but yeah. it, it, it hasn't always been like that for you. So what I want to do is go back to growing up. Was was Cardiff? Were you born in Cardiff? Uh, I was born in Carmarthen, but so, I, we, so my parents. It, it, uh, you know, give me the knowledge about where Carmarthen is in regards to Cardiff, and pretend that pretend. Yeah. Let's pretend that I'm extremely ignorant in my geographical knowledge of Wales. So, okay, so Carmarthen is kind of, if you go on the M4 from England to Cardiff and you just carry on down that road, essentially, you'll end up in Carmarthen. It's probably about an hour and a bit from Cardiff, um, I think. And, uh, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a sort of, I think it was a sort of market town, but it's in Welsh it's called Caerverden. Um, so it's like, um, if anywhere in Wales has got Caer, and it means it was a Roman fort at some point because there's quite a big river that flows through it. So you know, it had significance as a. It's been around for ages. And actually, Merthyn, Caerverthyn, which is Merthyn, which is actually Welsh for Merlin. So it's kind of quite a magical place. Um, but it's very, it's very pretty area. Carmarthenshire is very beautiful. I've been filming down there recently in near Sandalo. It's so beautiful. Um, so yeah, it's it's kind of you know West Wales, I suppose. Yeah, and was it a magical um, time growing up, or is it? A yeah, well, I moved, I moved to Cardiff when I was five. Right. So I don't, I don't really, I don't have that many memories of Carmarthen. I mean, I remember being there. I remember a house, kind of, and I remember a few bits and bobs. But yeah, I feel like I feel like I'm I'm a Cardiff boy because I, I, you know, this where all the formative years were in Cardiff. Um. So, yeah, so it's all about Cardiff. Because it's interesting what, that, you know, when you grow up, because um, I remember my mum and dad taking me around the Lake District in, you know, the northwest of England when I was young, and I was like, I don't want to be doing this. And now it's like, you know, <laughs> my 40s, it's all I want to do. I want to get out on a walk. I want to be in nature. So it's interesting when you sort of go back to your, you sort of around your birthplace, what mm. it means it means to you at a certain age? Do you think um, Wales is somewhere? Obviously, I know it's so dear to your heart, but is it? Do you think it's somewhere where you would you would go back to to sort of nest and and lay foundations? Um, yeah, I guess. Well, I mean, my life's sort of in London and has been for a while. Um, 
But yeah, maybe I'd, I, I, I'm open at some point. I think maybe, you know, it would be nice. It would be nice to live somewhere at some point with some green and space, you know. Um, but yeah, not not quite yet. No, but then again, I'm talking as a 45-year-old man and you're still... I still see. I still think of you in your twenties. <laughs> I wish I was, mate. <laughs> no, because, because of course, when uh, and I don't talk too much about sort of acting on this, but um, for people that don't know, we met. I think, I mean, at least ten years ago, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. On uh, on. on uh, on the, the the start of the second series of Channel 4's Misfits, which... That is, yeah, it's 11 years ago. It's 11 it? years ago. Yeah, I think that... it was 2010 we were doing that, yeah. Crikey, O'Reilly. Yeah. 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 Oh my God, <laughs> it was, it was, you know, it was 2010 because my son was born at the start of Series 3. Do you remember? Because I had two weeks yeah. off. And then yeah, I had yeah, come yeah. back for Series 3. Um, so, yeah, it was 2010. Yeah. Crikey. Um, yeah, it's crazy. Isn't it? And we were still, even though I still felt like I still felt like an old man at that point because you were all really early twenties, and I yeah, was we still, were. All... I was still sort of, you know, really starting to learn what was going on, and it, it, it was. Yeah, I think I think Lauren was kind of like nineteen, I think, when we were doing it. Yeah, yeah, mad. Yeah, mad to think about that, isn't it? Yeah. It, it is, but I think it's important to to look back at certainly where we started, considering you went on to be involved in one of the you know the biggest shows around the globe, you know, which we'll come on to later. But let's talk about moving to Cardiff at five, and that wouldn't have disrupted your life at all at such an early age, would it? No, I do remember being annoyed about it. Oh, but really? Then I, I quickly, yeah, I remember because I just, I think it's change, isn't it? And I was just about to start school and stuff, or I'd done the first, you know, reception or whatever in school. And, but then um, I quite quickly adapted to Cardiff. And, and where, where I grew up, which is Whitchurch, it's like on sort of West Cardiff. So you quite easily, there's quite a lot of green space around this. You can very, it wasn't such a huge change from being in a small town to living in the city kind of thing. Um, but also you have all the benefits of being in a, in a city and it's still very close because it's not a huge city, it's close to get into town, but you're also on the west of the city so you can get out quite nicely, it's, a bit, it's quite leafy. Um, so yeah, I was very lucky in that sense. But yeah, it was, I mean, growing up in Cardiff was great because like I said, it felt like there was enough going on, you felt like there was bands that came and played here and you could go skateboarding in town and, you know, it, it was a bit, you could still get home quite easy and yeah, it was great. It was really cool. I've got very fond memories of Cardiff. I mean, it's, it's a cliche for me to say that, oh, well, music and singing plays such a massive part in all Welsh people's lives. And I'm, <laughs> and I've interviewed people this year and they go, Craig, I, I'm not going to do the accent. Craig, I can't sing to save my life. But music plays, certainly since I've known you, has played a massive part in your life. So what came first, the music bug or the acting bug? 
that yeah, music definitely. Uh, acting was, I guess, was always something I did in school. Like you know, drama I would have considered as being my kind of strong subjects, but I think that's because you can—it's quite easy to black, isn't it? Um, <laughs> <laughs> and um, I'm, I'm terribly lazy. Um, no, but uh, the, no, you're not. Yeah, I, I think I think you're a very hard-working actor, and I've seen. Oh, I am. I, I do put the work in. Yeah, I do. I'm not yet, <laughs> but. Um, um, so music, yeah, the, when did it, when yeah, did, when music. Did it come around for you? And were, were there um, influences for you, like with regards to possibly your parents? Um, yeah, I mean, not not that much. My 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 mum's tone deaf. <laughs> she won't mind me saying this. She she made a, a guitar teacher uh, move to Japan. Um, <laughs> that's, but, um, that, that's, a, that's another podcast in itself, mate. <laughs> yeah, whether, whether, whether he really did move to Japan or not, that was another thing. Um, but uh, yeah, the um, yeah, my dad's quite sort of musical. Um, but yeah, I think growing up in Wales, there's a lot of music around you all the time. In in like school, is it's quite you know a lot of singing and stuff. Um, and then we had a piano lessons, and I didn't really like that that much, but. I, learned to play piano and then when I think I was about 11, 12, I was like, I want to learn the guitar. So my parents were like, all right, cool. So we had some classical guitar lessons. Um, but then I sort of got fed up of having to, I wanted to, you know, play the the music of the, the bands that I was starting to get into at the time. So, you know, I had like a Beatles songbook and um, a and I got an Oasis one and then Radiohead. And then uh, learning to play the Benz and OK computer was like, wow, OK, this is this. Is, you know, I'm happy with this. Like, and then that's then I kind of stopped having lessons. And then also sort of simultaneously, I suppose I probably just started, I started playing in a little band when I was 12 on bass. Um, and then we played together in school for about, so we were probably about 16. And then everyone at GCSEs came along and they all wanted to, they all wanted to, revise <laughs> and I was like come on man what about the band <laughs> it, was, it meant so much to me the band was everything to me at the time um but then yeah that kind of fizzled away um, but I, yeah but so yeah it was always music I was, like if you'd ask me but, well, up into my early 20s what do you want to be like if you got to choose I'd say I'd say musician yeah definitely so when did but, acting, but, yeah like, when did acting take over ever so slightly because I know that music is still prevalent and so important in in your life yeah yeah definitely I think uh, when I was 17 I got a part in a Welsh language soap opera called Pobla Cum oh of um, course well the, the, you know the historic Pobla Cum yeah rite of passage um Absolutely. but yeah and that was it was great I mean I, I kind of that kind of made me think well and it was sort of, also that at the same time as in school you know they sit you down and then I would oh, so what do you want to do when you grow up? And like, oh, no, uh, I suppose I could I quite like acting. Uh, you know, I'll do that while I'm waiting to be a rock star. And um, <laughs> yeah, so, but then because they, Pablo Cum, thought I could do it, it kind of gave me a bit of confidence. Like, well, maybe I should audition for drama school, so I've got to do something, you know. And the producer at the time, Bethan Jones, was brilliant with me, and she just sort of pulled me up into her office and said, look, what do you want to do? Because, you know, you could stay here and you're, you're making good money and, you know, you're, you're doing the job. And um, but she was like, but I think you could, you should really, 
I, I, I personally, I would like it if you went off and um, went tried to go to drama school to further yourself because, you know, uh, which is quite a wonderful thing for producers to do. And, I, and like, you know, I owe, I owe everything because of that. And that, even though it was kind of my idea, but she just sort of said, look, um, I never really acted in English and you had to do like you know, Shakespeare and stuff. And um, so she, she was like, bring, bring them up to my office at lunchtime and I'll listen to them and help you get the sense of the language and stuff for my auditions for drama school in London, which is great. So I'm really fortunate. And I think that from then on, and then went to drama school, I went uh, to Lambda and even in Lambda, I was like, I want to be a rock star. And I was in a band. <laughs> I'm going to be a rock, I'm going to make it. Um, but, and then I think it basically up until the point where uh, I was out with finished Lambda and I was still playing in a band. And then I got uh, the part in Spring Awakening, the, uh, the musical. and, which, and was, that, which was a huge, a huge thing at the time because it was... Mm. I, you know, it was a smallish production that just blew up, wasn't it? Can we just, for people that don't know about Spring Awakening, can we just talk about its its origins and where it started for you? Yeah, um, so it was, it was a big, it, was, it started off small and Broadway and then it was a huge hit in America and it won all the Tonys and stuff. And um, and then, yeah, and then I, I was auditioning for it um, in in London because it was coming over here to, to go on in at the Hammersmith Lyric with the hope of then going into the West End. Mm. Um, yeah, and, and it was quite a long audition process. You know, but I was like doing gigs with my band the night before the auditions and coming in a bit. <laughs> like, and my yeah, voice but, was but, but, Yeah, but in a way, mate, this was uh, quite the incredible fusion. Because it yes, wasn't, yeah. it wasn't... Because it was very rocky, yeah. It was very but rocky. They, yeah. and they were looking about, for someone who sounded different. So and also, actually, the f- no, but yeah, no, no, no. But sorry to talk, but it sort of it had depth. It wasn't just um, some sort of frivolous musical. And no, they, no. And obviously they needed uh, they needed actors that could portray uh, kid high school children. Is that yeah, right? trouble. Yeah, and, and yeah, so, yeah. And 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 the music was very rock and and, it, and an unconventional music and musical in the sense that the songs didn't continue the narrative, like they they were the inner lives of the characters. So whereas Moritz, who I was playing, was riddled with insecurity and and neurot, neuroticism, and um, but as a when he pulled his microphone out and started singing, he was like a sort of like rock rock star. So it kind of fitted, sort of almost like went into that. But then because of that, then subsequently I couldn't, um, I couldn't play with the band anymore because I was doing eight shows a week and, and I, you know, you couldn't justify because to a degree you need to look after your voice because it's quite a lot of pressure um, on your voice to do that. Um, so, yeah, so that's kind of when I, music very much changed for me in a sense. Well, that's, I guess that's where acting became my job. Um, and and, and- did, did you feel, did you feel fulfilled um, when the two were merging for Spring Awakening because you were learning more about acting, but you were when you got the mic in your hand, you were living the dream of what you wanted to do. You, you <laughs> yeah, were yeah. a rock star. 
Yeah, but I, yeah, I never really thought that. It was more, it was playing the character for me. It was always like that's that was the truth of him. Um, and yeah, but then it, what that meant was that I started to go more in a sort of acoustic way in terms of my music that I would be writing on acoustic as not to think, not thinking so much as writing a song for a band, but more as a, perform, a solo performance because you need to do that on your own. And I had to have that in my life because sitting and playing a song on my own is really important to me. Like just having that, that time on your own to sing and like let stuff out and get stuff out on paper. And I just enjoy writing songs and it's, um, it's just something I can't stop doing. It's not like I, I've set out to, you know, I, I can not do it, you know. Um, is, it, is it because yeah. it's, it's uh, a need, it's a creative output that you need to just sort yeah. of sit? Because I was talking to, I had, I had, um, I interviewed a chef this morning who instead of opening a restaurant, he opened a restaurant in his house and he only cooks. Oh, wow. He only cooks for eight people, and he does a like a twelve course tasting menu yeah. four times a week. And that he said, you know, it's because I have complete control over what I do. And if anything fucks up, then it's on me. But it's all about preparation, and it's a need that I I have to do this, and I have to do this my yeah. way. So for you to, even if you are acting, for you to sit down and write and strum and play to get it out there, is there something in you that that's a, a peaceful, quiet time for you? Yeah, that's exactly it, yeah. That, that, yeah, that's exactly it. It's, it's that kind of, yeah, because I think, especially with, as you know, with acting, you, you get a part, but you're a part of a much greater thing and, and your role within that, I feel, is to fulfil that specific part within within the greater piece, right? But with the music, it's that's my own very my very own thing that I get to control, and 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 I actually am in in direct control of it because I'm playing it and I'm singing it and I've yeah. written it, and nobody's told me what to say or what to do or you know, and so there's something very. Um, cathartic about it, I suppose it's just let, it's letting stuff out and I just feel better you know and that's just just sitting and playing a song in a in a hotel room whatever you know were you were you not that I speak about this that much on uh, this podcast because um, I don't like to uh, but whilst everything was locked down did you find you were less or more creative musically because you had to time and control uh i think probably a li- certainly the beginning a lot more creative and then maybe it tapered off a little bit mm. but also I, I used the time to like start to learn to record myself and start to like fiddle around with it's just on garage band but you know to start messing around with that because i'd never really done it by myself before it would have been an engineer or someone who understood the equipment and I'd right. just say, oh, wouldn't it be great if we had that noise? <laughs> and, then, and then we'd try and make it, and they'd be like, oh, maybe it's that. And it's like, cool. Whereas it was like, okay, now I have to completely make it myself um, with limited um, equipment. Um, so that, that was a, a great thing to throw. Because like when you start recording and you start fiddling around, it's just hours just go by, and all of a sudden, 
yeah, so that was really good for me. So that, in that sense, it was, it was very creative. Yeah, but that's so fantastic because you're taking a step up because you're going, well, have the, I have the control and sometimes the time to write songs and play songs. Now I'm going to be a one-man band and an engineer and, and, and I'm, gonna, I'm learning yeah. new things. So you're taking yeah, yeah. more control. So, you know, in some respects, that, yeah. that is a positive. Yeah, it's a real positive. Yeah, and, and obviously, the, it, you learn. You, you, the only way to learn is by making loads and loads of mistakes, and oh, and, Jesus, and then go, yeah. okay, I can't repeat that again. So, the, but with recording, it's so many like you just get yourself into like minefields, and it's like, oh, what have I done? And then yeah, so it's it's great, and it, and it's and then once you've recorded something and you listen to it back, it's like, oh, that was cool. I really made that myself. That's cool. How, how are you with listening to things back as opposed to? watching things back because when I interview actors all the time there are certain people that are extremely judgmental about what they do as as actors when they when they watch things back and and there are some that can't and there's some that don't want to but on the flip side there are some that are forensic in their approach of watching mm. things back um so where I suppose that's two questions. Where are you with your own work that you control musically as opposed to your acting where, you know, there, there are other people pulling the strings? Yeah, um, I think with the music, it, you have to be like, you, you know, you've got to, you can't just think, oh, that, that's great, that'll do. You've got to keep trying to push it and, and also engineering is mixing and you know eqs and panning and all this stuff that you can do to make it the sound so that's a very you know that's just something you just spend loads of time with and you get stuck in this like rabbit hole and you're just in there for hours i'm very very critical very critical and you've played something they're like oh that's really good it's like yeah but that little bit there's rubbish that needs to you know it's just all the that needs to come up that that's mixed badly that's you know all, all of those things but that's that's the way to be, I think, and and I guess I then, in terms of watch, if I, I don't particularly like watching myself, um, I used to I used to do it more as because I started in a soap opera. I was really lucky because I had no idea what I was doing, and but after a month it comes out, so you can watch yourself and go, oh god, I'm not doing that again, or you know, <laughs> or that's that works, yeah. So that's how I learned really how to do it, especially with with on screen. Um, uh, so then. I, you know, when, for example, we were doing Misfits, I'd watch that, and because I didn't know what I was, I didn't know what I was doing, you know. So, so in a kind of to learn from my mistakes or to find out what worked. But as I've got older, I, I find it more and more difficult and more cringy to watch myself um, because I'm incredibly critical and and I just tear it apart. But especially when you don't have control because it's out there, you can't change it. The interesting thing creatively mm. about what we're talking about now, but what you do when you're not quote unquote doing your day job, which is acting, you can change things about your music before you put it out. So you have the control and control comes mm. up so much when I talk to actors over this. And, and, it, and it's interesting that you say how critical you are as an actor and how you learn to watch. Cause there was something so beautifully and I, I'm I, you know we're mates so I can say this and you know I'm not blowing smoke but there was something so beautifully 
contained and controlled um, about your energy when we shot Misfits that, that, that had to burst out with that superpower. So it was kind of, it was, it was kind of perfect in, in that respect. And whether you, you can see that or not from an you know, audience point of view, it was there, and I'm sure many people will agree with me, you know. Yeah, you can't say anything because that's me giving you a compliment, and I can't understand. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> thank you. <laughs> but but to, but um, there is a, a sense of power musically that you can change things. You know, it's like yeah. when I talk to theatre makers um, or actors or directors you know, reading a review can go either way because if it's a theatre review and it's not great, then, you know, you've got to get back on stage for another few months or whatever it is. Um, Is is that helpful? Personally, I don't think so. Reading a television review, is it helpful? I don't know because it's it's in the can, isn't it? It's done. There's nothing can change, mm. and also it's art, and it's one person's opinion. Yeah, I think reading reviews is a terrible idea for actors. Any young actor I work with now to just don't read it, don't look at them. They're not for you. Like I was, t- I was lucky enough to be taught that. So was I. An incredible, incredible theatre director who came to see me, and I don't do a lot of plays as anybody listening to this podcast knows because I've said it a few times but when I when I'm fortunate enough to do so uh, uh what was it I mean 10 years ago it was around the time when we last worked together I was doing a play mm. and um uh, a theatre director who I respect um ever so much who doesn't come to see a lot of theatre came just to see me and uh, and I said in mid conversation, oh, well, I haven't read it in review, so I don't know what, it, what, what it's. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. Uh, and he said, "Well, why would you read reviews? Because they're not for you." Mm. And it's mm. that piece. It wasn't even advice. It was just a conversation that we had. But I took that away and went, "Yeah, well, no, the reviews aren't for you." So who who gave you that advice? Because it's such. Yeah, a, w- a wonderful actress called Shan Thomas. She she was in, she's Spring Awakening. Oh, brilliant! She, yeah, yeah, she plays she played all the uh, ad- uh, female adult parts, so they a variety of parts. But she was great, and she just she just said it to us to because we were very very young cast, and I was I think twenty two, twenty three, but I was one of the oldest, you know. And they were they went down to sixteen. Um, so it was uh, for me that was just such a great bit of advice because and i've and I've stuck with that, and I always tell people to do that because it because it also if it's brilliant it's no it's no good for you because I think if it's a really great review and they're raving about you, you're then gonna go up the next night and be like, "Well, I'm bloody brilliant what have, what have I got to explore now and then you're kind of not going to enjoy it as much and and if you and if you go out there and really you know, even if, even if, I mean, obviously with Spring Awakening, the reviews are exceptional. Like you, I couldn't avoid the fact that I knew that every bloody critic gave it five star except for one, but I didn't know what they said within the article. But, um, 
you can't avoid that. So you know it's good. And that's brilliant because that gives you confidence. That means you think, yeah, this is working. Whatever it is, it's working. But can we make it, how can we make it better? And especially on stage, when you're doing something for a long time, you want it to adapt and evolve and you want to improve all the time. Always. And obviously and some nights something doesn't work and, it, and, then you, and, then, and then all of a sudden it works and then it always changes. But um, yeah, that's why reviews are not, they're not for actors, man. And, and also that is the beautiful thing about theatre, that you have the opportunity to change and grow and evolve every single night. Mm. It's, it's, you know, yeah. it's, uh, it's not even finished when the run's finished. It's just, it's just that journey's come to yeah. an end. It, it, yeah, obviously yeah, it could go on. But yeah, I mean, you said that about uh, a good review there, and we have spoken about this before, but I think it's, it's so important, certainly for, for younger actors, Oh, anybody to to hear that? You know, what is the worst thing like? You know, to read a review or somebody says, "Oh, you know, when you do that scene and you do that bit, that's amazing." You go, "Oh no!" Now I'm conscious of the mm. fact that somebody thinks that when I do such and such, it 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 sparks something in somebody else. Now I'm conscious, and it it will never be the same. No, exactly. Yeah, it's 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 really difficult. It's really hard, you know, to not be conscious because you can't be. Because the moment you, you, if you start trying to replicate the same thing, it becomes oh, boring. I mean, you and also you're fucked because yeah, you're not going to enjoy you, it. Well, and you won't enjoy it, and you won't um, recreate that at all. But just jumping back, um, we skirted over um, drama school. How was your time? Was because that was was that your first time that you? Moved to London full time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. How how was your three years? Um, <laughs> I didn't. I didn't have a great time. Um, I found the transition quite difficult because I was been working as a. I was been working for two years on a soap on the soap, being part of the company and treated like a like an adult, really. Yeah. And then all of a sudden. I go to London and I'm in this very, a very, going back to a kind of very school-like rigid um, sort of timetable and format. And, and I think it was a shame that the faculty, although I'm sure, you know, fantastic, they, they, they kind of boxed you very early and I got boxed in. And also I'm one of those ones. I'm the one that, get, I'm the one that gets caught laughing, you know what I mean, all the time. That's, that's you know, the, the older boys who are a bit more experienced say the jokes and I get busted laughing. And, and then you get, and then, and then you're like, and then you, you, all of a sudden they're like, oh, he's just a little shit. And I think I was maybe a, a bit of a little shit. But on the other hand, I, and I was going through a lot of stuff and I, and I did, made the mistake, I fell in love with this bloody girl in my year, classic. And then she <laughs> what, wasn't what really... In, what, in your first year? Yeah, yeah, older and, you know, and, and I was like completely infatuated. And it was kind of on and off, on and off kind of thing. But that was a very difficult environment to be in. Yeah. Because obviously it's very touchy-feely and everyone's massaging each other and you're always, always with each other in drama school. And, 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 also and that made it very difficult. It's so intense. Yeah. And I think my my... My struggle and sadness was viewed as indifference, as opposed to they didn't realise that I was going through quite a lot of stuff emotionally, but it just seemed like I wasn't really that interested. And perhaps I was honest about, I, I'm not very good at playing the game, and 
and being, you know, they're like, how did you find that movement exercise? And people are like, oh, it's so amazing. And he was like, oh, I got so much out of it. I'm like, what? what? No, you didn't. <laughs> like, that's just bullshit. And uh, yeah, so I, I found that quite tricky. But it was difficult. I, I think as it went on, it improved. And in the third year, they kind of shafted me really a little bit. In, um, what, in, in regards to what part, you were given parts. parts. Yeah. yeah. I mean, yeah. That third year is very tricky because you don't have any say in what you're given. Just to give some um, perspective on what we're talking about for for people that, that, that don't know. In the third year at drama school, you're, you're doing uh, play after play after play. And they want to, and they try, I'm sure, uh, divvy it up basically they want to give everybody a shot because there's uh agents coming there's casting people coming as members of the public coming it depends what you're doing um but you're constantly critiqued uh throughout your third year and yeah i i think inevitably there is favoritism and some people do get shafted Mm -hmm. Did, did you make your voice heard at that time or did you feel that uh, that you couldn't really speak out. Um, I did make my I I because we were doing it was the the first set of plays we did were modern. We were, and I, I was in all my sons Arthur Miller, which is a phenomenal play. Yeah, but you, you like there's a part of an eight year old boy in the first act, um, and he's in like. He's in it for like 10 seconds. And it is essentially a, a plot device to make you like Joe Keller. And, and I got cast as that. And everyone else was like, and it was, I, I just couldn't believe it. It was like, what, you don't even need the part, you know, it was, and I, and I went up to the office and I, I was like, look to the head of acting. Like, what, what's, why, what the hell is this, man? Why, why have you done this? This is because like, the first time you're doing it public, and there's so much build up to it, and then all of a sudden I'm, I was, I just didn't understand why. And they went, well, you know, if you don't get a good part in the classicals, it's a fuck you from us. And then they were doing Othello in the classicals, and I was like, oh, here we go, <laughs> okay, Iago, here we go. Yeah. And I was in a Elisa Strata, walking around the massive phallus, oh. and, a, and a baby, and it was just like. Oh, so it is. Uh, it is that then, right? Okay. So yeah, it was. It was. It was just quite. I was just disappointed. It was. It was hard for me um, because I could have just done. They could have given me anything else. You know what I mean? I didn't want like really. I didn't. It's not about having a lead role, but it's about playing an eight-year-old boy for the first time in front of the public. Um, yeah, I mean that. That's kind of embarrassing. It's embar- It's exposing. Is what it is, and you, yeah. you know you've just gone through a tough, intense two years and now you're in mm. front of the public and you're being asked to play an eight-year-old boy. Yeah. So it's, yeah, it's, it's humiliating. Be, because of that final third-year experience, on graduation, how, how were you? Because, you know, you're putting yourself out there in that, that final showcase. Were you... Uh, were you nervous about putting yourself out there for, you know, to hopefully be picked for, by an agent? Yeah. Yeah. 
Well, it, yeah, it was. It was quite. It was difficult. That that I I, I did get an agent during my third year, um, who I'm still with. He's still my agent today. Yeah. Um, and but so I was lucky. But um, yeah, uh, it was quite. It was quite. I think it was quite scary though. Actually graduating and then all of a sudden you're out of this bubble that you've been in, where you know all of a sudden you're you're out there in the real world. And you've got to try and get a job. (laughs) Because there is such safety. And you mentioned the Mm. word bubble there. You you do feel like you're in that bubble. You know, you're in eight till sometimes 10, 11 o'clock at night. Yeah. Uh, And then to be thrown out there. Mm. And you kind of cease to be a group or a unit. It's like, right, Mm. we're we're trying to sell ourselves now as individuals because we're stepping out of this family unit and we're going to try and go out into the the big old wide world. Mm. So did, do you think that third year knocked you down a bit with regards to confidence or? I was, yeah, I left drama school without any confidence at all. Yeah. Which is stupid. But no, it's not, I don't think it is stupid because I think it's extremely important. So how did you or how did anybody else support you moving forward? Um, I don't know. I think my agent, Grant's brilliant. He's been, you know, he's always been really supportive and enthusiastic, um, um, you know, about me. And I kind of, you know, I, I think I'm quite lucky in many ways. I have like this self-belief which has probably come from having fantastic parents um and you know we're very fortunate for that but that I can that I, I just kind of believe that you know I, I do there is a belief that even though I was my confidence were low was low and I but it, it didn't just deplete me it wasn't like oh like, I'm never gonna do it I think somewhere inside it's still you know it's that 21 you're like, I'm gonna be a rock star <laughs> you know it is that it's somewhere I'm lucky I'm lucky to have that it's a very privileged thing to have because it because when you're at your lowest, you still have something, you know, and, it, um, and I yeah. think, you know, and, and, but then, you know, that, that first year I didn't really work at all. And that, you know, it's like, oh, oh no, this is, but I think it's good for you, man, because I think now I still take every job and it's, it's like every, I don't feel, you know, oh, I bloody made it. Do you know what I mean? It's like, I still feel like that sense of I've got a job every time. And, I still, you know, um, and I still worry about not getting a job. And um, I think that really helped, you know, it's, it's sort of, you don't have that complacency. It doesn't matter what I'm doing or, you know, I still have the urge to, to do it. Um, so maybe yeah. I should thank Lambda for knocking me down a few pegs. No, but I think, it's, I think it's important to be knocked down and to make those mistakes. I mean, I, wanna, I, I don't want to say early on, but whenever because you can always build and learn from them. But you, you've mm. always struck me as somebody who is conscientious, you know, about what they do. But in those slightly darker down days when things aren't panning out, of course, you know, we've spoken at length about you've got a fallback of music as a creative output. But if 
you know, you're on the road and you, you've got jobs under your belt as an actor. How do you cope when you're not working? Um, I think it, music, again, is very much, I have to focus on that. Um, so you're good at switching off and going, well, at the moment, I'm the scripts aren't coming through or the jobs aren't coming in. Uh, I'm just going to, I'm going to turn left here. Yeah, I think, yeah. Uh, obviously, I worry about it. Um, and sort of last year, particularly, it was like, oh, is this it? Is that, you know, is this it? Like, you just don't know. Um, but yeah, he's sort of focused on the music and just trying to stay positive. Um, yeah. I mean, I mean, what else can you do? You know? Yeah, you can. Yeah, you just hope for the best. <laughs> I remember um, a, a few years ago, and I was talking to Jodie Whittaker just before she, her first episodes of Doctor Who were airing, and she had talks with David Tennant and Matt uh, and all the Doctor Who execs, and they, you know, they sat her down and went, "Basically, look, you're stepping into this, and it's." it's going to be full on and it's going to change everything now. And I, as people know, I don't want to reiterate, but I feel I have to, uh, when I do these podcasts with actors, I don't tend to talk about work, but when you stepped into what was, and for some people is the biggest show in the world, which is game of Thrones, did anybody sit down and talk to you and went, okay, this is, this is quite a big deal. Or was it just, right, you're doing this, you're playing Ramsey, away we go. Yeah, just wheel you on. <laughs> right, just <laughs> get in. You know the lines? Yeah, no, go and act. Yeah, no, yeah, it, it was, um, yeah, I didn't know, you didn't get, I had no idea what I was. But I think when I started, it hadn't quite exploded the way that it did sort of later on. Right. I think it was that, it was the beginning of that, like, trajectory yeah 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 Yeah, i think it's the red wedding and all that stuff is when it really which was the season i joined so it kind of so uh, yeah i mean obviously it was very popular but it wasn't quite that you know the absolute mad you know ride that it became and where when it was on you couldn't actually do anything because you were just like oh yeah hello yeah oh gosh (laughs) yeah oh my god oh my god (laughs) oh no Run away. <laughs> but yeah. And is it enjoyable or to, you know, to be a part of, because you, you know, you started off as something, and I think I can say with the greatest respect that Misfits on Channel 4 was a very independent television program. And I, and I, I like to think way ahead of its time, but it was quite an underground show that people still catch nowadays mm. and go, oh, my God, wow. Yeah, yeah. Whereas this is something that's global. So, yeah. But I think the, the lucky thing for you is you've got such – compliment coming, just, just put your head on the table. You've got such a, <laughs> you've got, you've got such a lovely face that you can, <laughs> that you can play. Um, so <laughs> – I'm never going to be this nice to you again. You've got such a lovely face that, that, you, that you can be, and you're such a skillful actor, that you can be 
so horrendous and so uh, behave in such a horrific manner and then be so warm and loving. Um, Are you, do you feel that you're, and I think all actors are at some point, I've spoken to Nicole Kidman, I know that sometimes she feels that she is. I'm going like, well, we're speaking to the, <laughs> like big movie stars. Um, about being pigeonholed, do you feel that you can move between certain um, boxes such as that? Yeah, well, I'm trying to. It's hard. But yeah, but I mean, all all the characters tend to be this. <laughs> I mean, there's, there's something wrong with them. <laughs> is it? Is it? Is it hard? Is, is it hard though? I mean, uh, certainly after something as global as Game of Thrones, playing somebody yeah. so wicked, we did you? Yeah, find the people that, just wanted. They wanted to yeah. repeat that. Yeah, they could. Oh, yeah. he could do that. Brilliant. Let's get him in. But yeah, um, yeah so that's then up to me and my team and like agent stuff to look to. to fight against and to try and so that's why you know doing a, a christmas rom-com was well, like that's what we've been looking for that that was it it was like okay we need a rom it was a joke we need a rom-com and it came it was like great <laughs> let's do that no um, it's, it's no for it. it's no joke we always need a fucking rom-com and i think yeah and I, in fact romantic comedies they're my favorite genre of films <laughs> Comedies, yes. Romantic comedies, my favourite. So hard to get right. Now, mm. let's just add another level. Christmas romantic comedies, fuck me, <laughs> really hard to get right. Let's, let's just talk about this, this new film that you're in with Frida Pinto. And it's called A Christmas Number One? Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Hit me... Sets just you know look this is not a press junket mate don't worry about it but just <laughs> what so, uh, basically don't tell me what sold it to you um to me it was uh, well, wanting to uh, do a rom com for so long and play like a nice normal character um and also there's the, there's a lot of musical elements so I, I play a musician oh here who we go writes this. Christmas we've, number one. We've gone full circle, mate. There we go. Mm, yeah, it's weird. Yeah, it's mad. Yeah. So he's, but he's a frustrated, like, uh, bass player in a metal band, and they haven't really made it. So I understand how he, how he feels having not become a rock star. At this, <laughs> you know what I mean? Uh, <laughs> um, but yeah. So, but he he has a terminally ill um, niece, and she's obsessed with Christmas, and she basically convinces him to write this Christmas number one. Um, there's a Christmas song rather, um, and yeah, but then, yeah, so then the other side of the the rom of the com is Frida Pinto, who plays Meg, and it was like a corporate manager for a band, and they need a song, so that that's how the two worlds collide. And the, the of course, the terminal niece is uh, is a massive fan of Five Together, the pop group, so that, that you know, she has to basically convince him. To use, and he's like, I don't know, you know, to use my song, but then he ends up having to do it, yeah, for his niece. Yeah. I mean, fuck me, I'm in. I'm in. <laughs> oh, yeah, I'm... I think I, I watched these the other day. It's, it's, it's really, it's, it is what, you know, it's a heartwarming, 
bits of it really sad. It's got loads of heart. Um, like it really, it's, it's yeah, and it's got a nice bit of music in it, you know. And it was cool because it was a guy Chambers did the music, um, and then he was like, oh, "I've got an idea for the for the song," and and I was like, "Yeah, I've got you know." Okay, so I came into the studio with a song, and then he started playing on the piano, and it was like, "Cool, man, <laughs> we're both playing together." And I was like, "Let's record it." It was like, "Cool," and then and then we're like, "Oh yeah, we'll use that in the film." So that so which is great because. I wrote this song from Blake's perspective, having you know got into the character, but then that is actually the song in the film that Blake has written is the song that I wrote. What? So, so, so you and, you wrote the, you wrote the song for the film? Yeah, the yeah the 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 yeah Christmas morning yeah. Um, so yeah, which which just which gives it like this real validation, I think. So I, I yeah, I wrote it and well, I mean, guy sprinkled his magic on it, and 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 we wrote it together. We kind of yeah put it together. It was great. Oh, mate, what a lovely outcome. Yeah, it was cool. Yeah, it's just kind of, and it all happened very quickly and it was just really nice. And um, so it's, it's, I think it just gives the film just a little something extra, to be honest, because it's, it is, you know, it's kind of real. It's, uh, yeah, it's nice. It's cool. Very, oh, yeah. man. Um, Iran, what, I mean, it's lovely to see you after all these years, but I'm so it's pleased so that finally you've been able to come on the podcast because I know that we've been trying to get this sorted for well over two years and uh, and everybody's (laughs) going to be thrilled that you've been on. Uh, I can't thank you enough for spending some time with me. Bless you. Thank you. I really enjoyed it. Well, me too. And a very Merry Christmas, my friend. Merry Christmas. Another episode is done. What a lovely, lovely man. He's got a great voice, hasn't he? Um, yeah, it was lovely to see him. I haven't seen him for ages. Uh, so thank you for downloading and subscribing that and being here. Uh, we have today recorded, as we always do at this time of year, although I think I recorded it on my own last year. Well, I didn't see Griffiths because it wasn't allowed. Um, we've just been in the centre of Manchester, recording a part two. If you're on social media, you will know this already. Uh, part two with the brilliant Gary Usher. So that'll be coming out soon. But we recorded a video message, a Christmas video message for you and you alone, just to say, I'm not going to say, well, just watch it. You know, you know the vibe usually. Um, I'm just looking at the calendar now. So it's the sixteenth today. And then obviously next Thursday it's twenty-third, and then the week after we're starting to get into New Year. So I'm gonna to speak to producer Griff. I don't know what we'll do. We're all gonna be really busy. We're gonna sit down and wanna to listen to a podcast for the next couple of weeks. Maybe what we'll do is we'll take the twenty-third and the thirtieth off, and I'll meet you back here fresh, bright, breezy, rested on the 6th of January. Does that sound good? That sounds good, doesn't it? So we'll take 23rd, 30th off. And then um, we'll do back-to-back chef, chefy episodes. Um, I don't know which order, but we'll have a part two with Gary Usher. And I can reveal um, a, a wildly interesting conversation 
with uh, a brilliant chef called Eddie Shepherd, who lives and works uh, here in Manchester. And he has a restaurant that's in his house. That's right. His kitchen is his restaurant. It's fascinating. Uh, we've got some great photos. Fo- well, not, not as great as what Griff would do, but we've got some great photos, uh, some lovely videos, and uh, an interesting chat with a lovely, lovely bloke. It's brilliant. It's a great episode. I really, really enjoyed that. So we'll have we'll kick the year off with um, with a bit of a food natter. That's good, isn't it? Right, okay, I am going to go uh, and discover why the Royal Mail has lost one of my packages. You didn't need to know that, did you? No, I Okay. Until, well, oh, God, that's it, isn't it? I'm not going to say until next week. I'm not going to say that because we're off for two weeks. Look, whatever you're doing this Christmas, have a really, really lovely time. Stay rested, stay safe. Eat and drink what you want. Don't worry, you don't need my permission. You know what you're going to do. And also, um, if you're alone this Christmas, um, jump on... If you don't follow Sarah Millican, do follow the gorgeous Sarah Millican, who uh, will be coming on this podcast next year uh, when she's not touring. She's forever touring. Um because she's great, and she chats to lots of people on Christmas Day on Twitter. Um, so follow Sarah uh, on Twitter and Instagram. That's Carol I'm going off. Brilliant. Um, if you are alone, because um, people do join in, and it's uh, it's quite a lovely community. I've done it um, a few bits with Sarah over the last few years. And if you listened to the BBC Sounds podcast that I hosted called Obsessed with Line of Duty, which is probably still available on BBC Sounds if you fancy it. Um, Sarah was my guest twice. Uh, she's a lot of fun. I, I like her company very, very much. And I think you will too. So if you are alone, follow Sarah on Twitter and you can have a natter. It's good. So look, that's it. Have a lovely Christmas. A happy, happy new year. Myself and producer Griff can't thank you enough for all your support, but you'll see the you'll see the video message. That's basically what it's about. It's just like a nice big hug to you all, and to say thank you. Um, yeah, have a great Christmas, Happy New Year, and we will see you fresh, ready to start the year on the sixth of January. Okay. Until then, I've been Craig Parkinson. He's been producer Griff. And thank God this year is over. I'll see you on the 6th of January. Take care. The Two Shot Podcast is presented by me, Craig Parkinson, recorded and produced by Thomas Griffin for Splicing Block. Our music, our brilliant music, is courtesy of Then Thickens. Cheers. <laughs>